What does it mean to be a Christian? If you were asked that question by an interviewer or a seeker on the street, what would you answer? The question is not how do you become a Christian? That's a different question. But what does it mean to be a Christian? We would probably start with a set of beliefs, but what people would put on that list can be shockingly varied. Organizations like Barna and Pew Research Center study these sort of questions. Here are some findings that might surprise you. They did surprise me. Pew Research found that 20% of self-described Christians do not believe in the God of the Bible. 42% of evangelicals say they believe God accepts worship from all religions. 65% of evangelicals, not Americans, not mainline Christian, just 65% of evangelicals said they believe this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, while we know that you can't have Christian faith without a set of beliefs, we also know that it's more than simply a list of facts and precepts, of course. Christianity is a life that is lived out. It's a new life in relationship with the living God. And so it is more than just a body of knowledge. It includes experience and advancement and participation in the unfolding plan of God as he pours out his power all over the earth. As students of the Bible, this is what we learn about the Christian life as we look through its pages. So when asked, what does it mean to be a Christian, we would probably begin by talking about the Lord and the truths that he has revealed, which we accept in faith. And then we'd start talking about things like the Great Commission, that ongoing rescue program that God has drafted each of us into. But believe it or not, nearly half, actually more than half of practicing uh, Christian, I'm sorry, nearly half of practicing Christian millennials believe it is wrong to share your faith with someone of a different religion. In other words, nearly half of practicing Christian millennials believe evangelism is a bad thing, according to polls. And when asked if they had previously heard of the Great Commission, one half of all church goers in the United States said they have never heard the term, okay? So let me read that again since I biffed it a little bit. <laughs> When asked if they had previously heard of the Great Commission, one half of U.S. churchgoers say they do not know the term. Okay, so where am I going with all of this? It's not just to depress us about the state of things. If we wanted to do that, you could have stayed home and watched the debate tonight. <laughs> tonight, our text provides a great expose on what it means to be a Christian. We will see a group of people who are earnest seekers of the truth, seeking after God. They want to believe, yet the content of their faith is severely lacking. And so Paul comes along and starts to fill in that necessary content, but it's not all about content. It's not all academic. At the same time, we will see spiritual activity of Christians. Put together, we see once again how Acts presents Christianity as a life that encompasses the mind, the heart, the hands, the feet, that Christianity is about developing and delivering, that spiritual education and spiritual experience are both a blessed necessity in the life of a biblical Christian. As we begin, we find Paul making good on the promise he made back in chapter 18, verse 21. He was hurrying to Jerusalem at that point. And he came through Ephesus for a short period of time. They said, will you please stay? He said, no, but I'll come back if I can. And now it's the can. He, he's back. 
He returns to the city of Ephesus. For background, we know that there are Christians there already. It's a big city, an important city. Priscilla and Aquila might still be hanging out. We're not sure, probably. But now Paul is back to do God's work. Verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Luke labels them as disciples here, but we'll find out that they're ignorant of Jesus, right? They're, they're missing some real important content. We might think of them as Old Testament believers, though some commentators believe that they were connected with the local church in town in some way. We're not exactly sure. But Paul is going to be a big help to these folks, and he's, we're going to see him bring them along very graciously, right? So these are people who are seeking after God, who are looking for answers, we would say, who want to follow the Lord. And Paul is going to be very gracious in bringing them along, uh, but bringing them into the truth and explaining to them the way of God. As Christians, we should understand that the people we encounter come from a very wide variety of backgrounds with different levels of exposure to the Bible and to Jesus. And the way forward for us is grace. I mean, that's the that's the plan, right? Because as you encounter someone, or let's bring it into our group setting here, if a stranger comes in on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, we don't know at the outset what their background or level of exposure is. They may have never held a Bible in their hands. They literally may have never heard that Jesus was a man who died on the cross for the sins of the world, right? Or they may have grown up in a home with, that was saturated with biblical teaching and going to church and those sorts of things. And so there's no way for us to say, well, every time someone walks through the door, this is what we do, unless the answer is the, that we act in grace and we act in love and welcoming and, and assume that God wants us to minister to those people. And so there's a wide variety. The way forward for us is grace. And as a church, we want to be as welcoming as possible while we proclaim the truth. This is one of the sad realities of churches that become really ingrown. Uh, they become very unwelcoming, very cold to the outside world. It becomes us versus them, and the them are bad because they're outside and they might do something bad to us. They might bring their icky sin in and do weird stuff to us. And as, as the church ingrows and looks within all of the time, those sorts of fellowships tend to shrivel up and when an outsider wants to come, they don't know what to do. So what happens in a lot of those churches is that, well, we just gather together all of the time every Sunday morning and we preach the truth, right? They would say we preach the truth to each other, okay? And, and what, about the, what about the stranger or what about the lost person? What about the person that doesn't know that you are not welcoming in to say, why don't you come and hear the message of the gospel, right? So we're, on the one hand, they're driving people away, but those are the people that need to hear the preaching of the gospel. And so that's sort of a sad reality. On the flip side, sometimes in the modern church, there's a tendency to say, well, the most important thing is that everyone feels welcome, and our definition of welcome is that everybody's comfortable and not challenged. And so, yeah, we want to tell them the truth, but let's massage it or sort of mute it or sort of pull it to the background so much that no one feels 
like they've been challenged or like they've been told they're a sinner or like they've been told that they need to get right before a holy God, right? And so these are a couple of pitfalls that churches sometimes tend to fall into. And so we wanna be welcoming of all sorts and then be ready to deliver biblical truth to them in love. Paul was open to speak to Pharisees or Sadducees or Jews or Gentiles or pagans or tradesmen or seekers or mockers. I mean, Paul would do it all, right? And he would do so without compromising biblical truth, obviously. And of course, we know that he would do so in love. And even though Paul, at least in my mind, when we think about him, he doesn't come off as one of the more cuddly characters in the Bible, but... We see here him really working in tenderness and care and kindness and graciousness to these guys who are completely wrong about the content of truth, right? Say, yeah, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit or whether he was given. We're gonna find out they don't know about Jesus. And so Paul doesn't come and smack them around. He leads them tenderly the way Jesus leads tenderly. Now, we don't know how Paul came across these guys, But as they interacted, something about them gave him the impression that they definitely had faith, but they were deficient in their spiritual lives. We see it there. He says, when you believed, but then it's clear to him that something was off, right? So it's a really interesting perspective that we see Paul have. And he looks at these guys and he says, you guys, you guys believe in God. You guys are seeking after the truth, but something is missing. Let's figure out what it is. What was it that was off? What was it that was missing? Well, we don't know for sure, but we can guess that even in their earnestness and zeal, they lacked the marks of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can surmise that because Paul immediately said, hey guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And it's not too far of a jump to say that he was looking at them and and interacting with them and realizing, yeah, these guys don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, what are the marks of the Holy Spirit? That's an important question. Because if you're a Christian here tonight, they are supposed to be marked showing on your life. Um, Another Christian or the world around you should be able to look at you and uh, Christians can put words to it and understand what it is. The unbelieving world doesn't always understand, but people should be able to look at your life and see, hey, this person has been marked, and we would say by the Holy Spirit and his indwelling in our life. So what are those marks? Well, God's word tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To be a Christian is to be marked by these things, to be characterized by them, to have those things tattooed all over our lives as we go through the world. In addition, the presence of the supernatural empowering to serve God with spiritual gifts. That's something else. The Bible says, okay, if you're a Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He has fruit that he bears in your life and he gifts you in a supernatural way to do the work of the ministry, to glorify God, to serve others, to build up the church, right? Those are things that should be visible and recognizable and noticeable, uh, certainly to other believers, but even to the world around us. Since we believe the Bible to speak truthfully, not only about who God is, but who we are, we should have certain expectations about our spiritual development in our own personal Christianity. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives isn't like Rogaine, which might encourage some hair growth in some people, right? I mean, I think we all have the understanding that if Rogaine was truly magic and truly put hair back on every head, 
they, it would be like the Clorox wipes right now. You can't find it. They're bought off of every shelf in every store, right? But that's not, that's not how the Christian life works. That's not how the Holy Spirit's interaction with us is meant to work. When we walk with God, He does complete what He began, and He keeps working on that project that He began, which means that you and I do bear fruit, not just some Christians in some ways, but that if I'm a Christian and I have the indwelling Holy Spirit, then God does do this work in me. He does bear fruit through my life, which will not only lead to wonderful spiritual blessings, but also it will lead to us becoming recognizably different when other people look at us. Different in disposition, different in communication, different in focus, different in perspective. There has to be a difference because we are different because we're new, we're brand new, the Bible says. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're just certified for heaven. Like, you know, um, it's like when they get, you get a Christmas tree, right? And they put the flame retardant stuff on there. And then they can say, okay, you're certified flame retardant. We, we sprayed a bunch of stuff on you and then you won't catch fire. That's not the Christian life. Well, you're certified for heaven and now you just kind of live through the Christmas season and then one day you'll get to heaven and you won't burn up, right? That's not what the Christian life is about. It's not about being certified for heaven. I mean, we are, of course, hallelujah. But more than that, in addition to that, it means you are a new creation right now, brand new, a new mind, a new heart, a new purpose, and new abilities given to you by the Holy Spirit to glorify God and serve Him and others. And of course, that's going to stand out as we cooperate with what God wants to do in us. So Paul saw these guys and he thought to himself, I'm looking at caterpillars here, I'm not looking at butterflies. They're very religious, they're very devout. These guys are people who care about God and they, they care about spiritual things, but something was missing. They were missing that spiritual transformation that is promised to born-again Christians. Now, before we move forward, we should recognize that these verses are a historic battleground between different groups of Christians and, and you know, different schools of thought. There's a big fight that brews here over Pentecostalism and the gifts of the Spirit and that sort of thing. I'm gonna touch on some of those themes tonight, but not nearly as much as is necessary for a student of the Bible because it's really an important issue. The gifts of the Spirit, what they mean for you, what they mean for the church, what the Bible teaches about them is an immensely important topic. And it's one that people get very emotional about and that there are camps that get really upset at one another about. And so it's worth a lot of study. If you would like to know more about what the Bible says on the subject or our church position on it, you visit calvaryhanford.com slash to be continued. And there's a long series uh, about the gifts of the Spirit and our understanding of them and what the Scripture teaches about them. Now, Paul asked these guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's time to turn that question on ourselves. Doctrinally, we know thanks to the special revelation of the New Testament, that when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians says. Now, when you believed in Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit, okay? So we are not stuck in this sort of transitional, we don't know about Jesus phase that these guys were. We know about Jesus. We have the New Testament. So Doctrinally speaking, we did receive the Holy Spirit when we believed. So the question for us is not, did you receive the Holy Spirit? It is this, since you received the Holy Spirit, is there a difference in your life? 
Is he moving in your life? Is he working in your life? Is anything different because of it? Because the Bible also explains that Christians are able to quench the Holy Spirit and that having begun in the Spirit, apparently we can drift into a life that's not spiritual. Paul's going to write a letter that has a real focus on this. He's going to say, hey, hey, you guys, having begun in the Spirit, do you think now you're going to be made perfect in the flesh? And it's because they were doing all of these things out of the work of their own human uh, propulsion. And so we see that, yes, we received the Holy Spirit when we believed. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to us to indwell us. But that doesn't mean that everything in our transaction with the Holy Spirit is done. Because Paul will also explain in the epistles that we are to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we're commanded, in fact, to go on being filled. And so different camps of Christianity really fight over this stuff. And, you know, super conservative theologians and Christians say, you receive the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian, that's it. There's nothing else. Anyone who tells you anything else is lying to you and adding to the Bible and these sorts of things. And then there's the far other side of the camp that talks about, well, if you receive the Holy Spirit, you will experience certain kinds of manifestations that we list here on our placard that are important to us. And so the truth is the Bible seems to be pretty straightforward about this for us New Testament believers. When you became a Christian, Jesus said, here's the Holy Spirit to indwell your heart. And now we have the wonderful opportunity and the duty to day by day interact with the Holy Spirit in a living relationship with him, allowing him to have his way and to lead us and to empower us for service and to gift us and do all of these other things, to not quench the work of the Spirit and to go on being filled. Sometimes say, well, what does that mean? How can we go on being filled? We saw it already previously in our studies of Acts. Remember we saw the 12 and the, it was the 120 there on the night of Pentecost or the morning of Pentecost and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Great. And then some stuff happens and some time passes and then a little bit of persecution hits and what do the disciples do? These same group of people, they come back and they have a prayer meeting and they say, Lord, we want boldness. We want to be used by you. Just go with us and lead us. And what does it say? It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The room shook. It happened again. And it didn't happen exactly the same, but we see that there was some sort of additional interaction with the Holy Spirit. And so we see what the Bible teaches about this and we understand that we are to go on being filled. And so the question is not, have you received the Holy Spirit? The question is, since you have as a Christian, are we going on being filled in our regular day-to-day -day life as Spirit-filled Christians? Are we marked by the Spirit's leading and influence and power in our lives? Can we look at the boughs of our lives and say, there's some fruit, there's some fruit, there's some fruit? Not in a proud way, but looking within and say, Lord, I'm, I'm inviting you to examine me and I want to see if these things that you promise, that these things that you say, here's what describes a Christian, love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things, do those things exist in my life? No patience exists in my life. Okay, that's a problem. And I might laugh about it and joke about it, but that's a problem because the word of God says, well, Rogaine spirit gives patience to some people sometimes in some ways. That's not what the Bible says. Verse three, into what then were you baptized? He asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. 
So these guys were disciples of John the Baptist. That means they believed in repenting of their sins and were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. There are a couple cool thoughts for us here. First of all, it's okay, even important, to find out where people are coming from. If you're going to interact with people and you're going to have spiritual discussions with them, it's important to find out where they're coming from. These guys were seen as spiritual. They were labeled as disciples. But after a little investigation, we discover they don't even know who Jesus is. They're waiting around uh, for the Messiah. And it's like, yeah, that train left like 25 years ago, okay? And so it, it's important that when you're interacting with people, or let's take it to a, a different aspect of light, when you're a- interacting with podcasts, when you're interacting with a podcast or a resource, you say, okay, I'm going to take in this spiritual content. Do a little research. Find out where they're coming from. Does that teacher believe in the orthodox teachings of Scripture? Do they believe in the inspiration of Scripture? Do they believe in the Trinity? Do they believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Do they believe, you know, this, that, or the other thing? And it doesn't usually take a lot of research to find that out. Second, Paul asks them another great question that we can turn on ourselves, into what were you baptized? If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, that's something you should do because your king has commanded it. If you have been baptized, water baptized, remember what that means. It wasn't just some meaningless ritual, or it shouldn't have been. It is the outward demonstration of what has gone on in your heart, a transaction that you've had with Jesus Christ, your king. It is the demonstration of what we might call positional reality of a Christian. To be a Christian, being baptized means that you identify with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and it means that you are now dead to sin, right? What, was it, what were you baptized into? You were baptized into the reality that you are dead to sin, which means that you no longer have to sin that there is no temptation that will overcome you that you're unable to get out from under. Uh, It means that you have been cleansed from your unrighteousness. So no longer do you have to worry that, well, maybe God will forget to save me or maybe God will get sick of me or maybe God will say, that was one slip up too much, I can't take it anymore. You were cleansed from your unrighteousness at the cross, your your sins past, present, and future, right? It's also uh, a recognition that you were raised up into a new supernaturally motivated life. It means you have now been given a ministry of reconciliation, the Bible says. So you were baptized into all of that, baptized into the deadness to sin, baptized into the cleansing of your unrighteousness, baptized into a ministry of reconciliation. This verse also gives us a little devotional idea that was encouraging to me. These guys had been baptized under John the Baptist's ministry, and here they are. It is 25 years later, probably. They're still waiting for the Messiah, still hopeful, still earnest, still trusting God, still living a spiritual life at what level they could, right? It was incomplete, but I mean, these are pretty uh, admirable guys for the information that they had. And, And while we don't wanna be lacking in the ways they were, of course, They are an inspiration for us. We know the Messiah. We haven't missed the boat, but we too get to wait for him. We're waiting around for Jesus to return. Eagerly, we get to wait. We get to wait with expectation. Now, whether that's gonna take 25 years or 25 hours, we need not lose hope. He's coming, we're waiting. Verse four, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is Jesus. So these guys were missing some very important and essential information. There are essentials when it comes to Christian belief, 
right? For example, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ really lived or that he is really God or that he really died on the cross and rose again, then you're simply not a Christian. I don't make the rules. That's the deal. I don't, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in God. Okay, then you're not a Christian, right? Uh, so I, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus was virgin born. The Bible declares that that is an essential. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe in the atoning work on the cross. I don't believe that Jesus was God. Okay, then you're not a Christian. You may be religious or philosophical, but you're not a Christian. Now, these guys were good guys. We would have described them as holy and devout. But you see, all they had done was turn their backs on sin, as John had told them to. But without a Messiah, they were directionless. What were they facing? Nothing. They were just kind of looking into the void of, I hope a Messiah shows up soon. I turned from my sin and now I have nowhere to go. And so this is interesting. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. You may cast away your old habits as a serpent casts off his skin, but if you are not resting all upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you have received the grace of God in vain. And so it does no good to reform behavior if the heart is not one for Jesus Christ. It does no good to say, well, I'm a good moral person. A lot of people say, I'm a good person. You're effectively just a snake who sheds some of his skin. If you don't have a Messiah who's gonna save you, it was all for nothing. You might as well have been a terrible person and just rob banks and stuff like that as far as eternity is concerned. So these guys were fine, moral, religious men, but they needed Jesus to come and take hold of them and save them. And from their negative example, we might say that to be a Christian means that you are for something. You belong to someone. You're not for sin, you no longer belong to sin, you've turned from those idols and left them far behind, but now your life is for the Lord, for his glory, for his service, for his pleasure. And so as Christians, we're not just out of evil, we're now in Christ and all of that 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 includes. Verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So these guys are earnest, humble, obedient. Those are great marks of Christianity. Having been filled in on what they were missing, they immediately said, okay, I wanna to belong to Christ. I wanna join his kingdom. I wanna be forever marked by him. I wanna identify with him. I'll leave all of that other stuff behind right now and serve Christ as king. Verse six, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. So now we see that not only was their education made more complete, they also had a new supernatural experience. There are, of course, some who believe and teach that to be a Christian means you must speak in tongues and experience what we would call the sign gifts of the Spirit, uh, like those we're seeing here. That is neither the teaching of the New Testament nor the pattern seen in the book of Acts. However, what is clear is that being a Christian means you will be supernaturally gifted and empowered to live out a life that includes the impossible for Christ Jesus. While we reject many of the carnal excesses of Pentecostalism or what we might call charismania, we simultaneously do not believe in or want to believe in some form of Christianity that is devoid of the supernatural. I don't even mean devoid of the supernatural in history, but devoid of the supernatural in the personal life. We don't want that kind of Christianity. That's not Christianity in the New Testament. God says he has supernatural spiritual gifts for you so that you can do things that you would not be able to do in your own power. That's what he says. 
Different kinds, different works, but the Holy Spirit, we are told, distributes to each and every Christian some sort of gift. Christianity is not just, I believe a set of doctrines and I attend church and I don't do bad things. What about the power of God? What about his living water rushing like a torrent through our lives? What about overcoming the world? What about confounding the wisdom of the wise? What about receiving the dynamic power of God, the Holy Spirit, that it might show through us like treasure in earthen jars? These are the ways that God describes the interaction of the Holy Spirit in the life of every Christian, that that's the plan for every single one of us. So Christianity is not just a moral philosophy. It's more than us just checking in with the man upstairs from time to time. It is an all-encompassing supernatural life lived out by people who have been made dead to sin and alive in Christ and who now operate as his body on the earth. In this passage, many commentators rush to tell you how there's no supernatural outpouring of the Spirit in these ways anymore, that we have no reason to expect extraordinary gifts like we see on the pages of Scripture. But how could that be true? The Father sent the Spirit to indwell us for a reason, to help us and to guide us and to lead us and to bring the dynamic power that is necessary into our lives so that we can be the body of Christ. Did Jesus live a life with nothing supernatural? Of course not. The gospels say if we tried to write down everything that Jesus did in the power of God, we wouldn't even be able to fill the, the whole earth would be full of the books. And now Jesus says, okay, you are gonna operate as my body on the earth. And in order to do so, I am going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell you and empower you and gift you. Not just so that you can have a moral philosophy that keeps you fireproof and certified for heaven, but so that you can turn the world upside down. That's God's plan. Part of the work of God is us exercising the spiritual gifts we've been given. Now here, spiritual gifts were demonstrated by tongues and prophecy. Some of you have these gifts. You need to exercise them. We learn the proper way to exercise them when gathered together as we look at passages like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But being a Christian means not leaving God's precious gifts, whatever they may be. They were handpicked for you. Don't leave them left on a shelf. So you see these guys exercising spiritual gifts. So the question is, what are your gifts? I doubt if you were about to retire and you went to an accountant to kind of get everything lined up and the accountant said, what are your assets? I doubt any of you would say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know. There's something, something. I was told there was a bunch of stuff, but I have no idea what it is. Of course not. You know why? You're gonna need that stuff. You're gonna want it. You're gonna need it. It's necessary for the future, right? Or if someone said this, hey, you received a package of inheritances and they're significant. Who would say, I don't, I don't really need to know about it. That's fine. Just like put it somewhere and I don't need it and I don't want to know about it. I don't know if it's $100,000, a million dollars or $100 million. It doesn't really matter. None of us would do that. That would be crazy. God has gifted you to grow you and to bless you and to use you to serve others. Being a Christian means not only discovering those things, but then exercising those things, exercising them for real in your personal life and in the gathering of the church and out in the world. Now, if the story ended here, we might be tempted to think that charismatic experience are the pinnacle of Christian living. These guys finally got to the end of their story and it ends with tongues and prophecy. There it is, we're done. 
But the story doesn't end. The narrative continues. We get a few more words as Paul continued his work. Verse eight, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The apostle showed a great ability to balance as a Christian. He could balance ministry inside the church and outside to unbelievers. We find him both evangelizing the lost and making it a point to develop and strengthen those who already believed. Being a Christian means getting involved in ministry, not just simply going from experience to experience. Paul said later in the New Testament that he spoke in tongues more than anybody. And he clearly had a profound communion with God, but we don't just see him going from afterglow to afterglow. He was balanced, looking in, looking out, doing the ministry, developing the heart and the mind, putting his hands to the plow, while continuing to work on his own individual life with the Lord. Verse nine, but when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for about two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So we note here that this ministry was based on discussions, not Pentecostal ecstasies, He could have hosted spontaneous tongues services, right? But he didn't. So on the one hand, we see him looking at these guys in the first part of the text saying, you know what, man, you guys need the filling of the Holy Spirit. You need it. You absolutely need it. And he led them into that wonderful reality. And now in these verses, we see him saying, you know what, the people of this city need the rightly divided word of truth presented in a way that they can understand. And so we see a wonderful balance. And the Christian life is balanced. As Christians and as a church, we got to continue to find a way to walk the line where our faith isn't just a list of intellectual bullet points of orthodox doctrines, but it also cannot just be a pursuit of particular manifestations that seem amazing or or fun to us. And sadly, these are the camps that people end up falling into. The more conservative you know, folks fall into a type of Christianity where effectively there is no interaction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit existed to give us the Bible, and I guess he indwells us for some reason now, who knows what it is. But all of this other stuff, all, you, you know, that we don't need any of that. Okay, well, that's not what the Bible shows us. That's not what the Bible instructs us in or teaches us about as New Testament believers. And then on the flip side, You have people that kind of fall into the other end of the spectrum where everything is always about just uh, emotional feeling and emotionalism and certain things happen that I can look at and I'll call that God or I'll call that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with what I see on the pages of scripture. It's completely out of the bounds of what uh, what is recognizable as godly or recognizable as something Jesus would have participated in, but let's call it the Holy Spirit and then we're good. And so we, we can balance, Paul balanced, Calvary Chapel historically has been about that balance. And so we want to not miss either vital thing, the rightly dividing of truth that we base our lives upon and the vibrant filling of the Holy Spirit, the biblical way, detailed in the epistles, exampled in Acts, it's to have a vibrant relationship with God based upon truth that operates in us, not only exists in our mind, but then operates in us as we go through the world, that we continually grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God's word while also perpetually exercising the supernatural gifts that have been supplied by the Holy Spirit. 
Being a Christian means that we believe and we move with purpose, according to truth. There should be a liveliness to us that is recognizable and yet unexplainable to the world around us. A life and a church characterized by proper knowledge and powerful activity. It's possible. It's God's plan. Let's participate. Be all that you can be as a Christian.